Well, in case you didn't know, um, Corona has been going around, apparently. All over our news feeds, all over our uh, warnings, Zimbabwe has school canceled. And the crazy thing is, right, how many cases of Corona do we have in Zimbabwe right now? Does anyone know? I think we've got three officially, um, although I don't know if we have any tests at Cherezi General, so I'm not sure how accurate that is. But they say we only have three. But here's the reason that they go ahead and cancel events, because that you are sick for two weeks before you show symptoms. And in fact, some of the most dangerous parts of this outbreak are not those who look visibly sick, but those who do not. And so if you said to yourself, I'll stay safe by only, I'll do the elbow thing, but I'm only going to do that for people who look sick. What the experts will now tell you is that is faulty thinking. Because the sickness is not always visible on the outside, but it is present on the inside. And as we think about our text today, we're going to be in Mark chapter 7. And we're going to be talking about tradition versus truth. We're going to talk about how the church can build traditions. And in many ways, they're like an external uh, thing that we can look at and say, that lets us know that you are doing a good job, that you are a real Christian because you look like a Christian. But just like Corona, what Jesus is concerned with is that the external does not mean that the internal is healthy. Amen? The external does not mean that the internal is healthy. And it can give you a false sense of assurance when we allow tradition to become the ruler by which we know if someone is a Christian or not. So here's the text. One more. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. This is Mark's way of saying the fight's about to begin. And in this corner, weighing 120 pounds from Nazareth comes Jesus. The showdown is about to happen. Jesus, who never backs down from a fight. And some of his disciples were eating foods with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, I need to tell you right up front that that's bad corona etiquette, uh, coronavirus etiquette right there. They're not washing their hands. But in these days, they did not wash their hands for sanitary reasons. They washed their hands as a way of showing that their hands have been dedicated to God. And so it was really more of a ceremony where you held your hands up and said a short prayer, much like how many of you pray before you eat? How many of you pray before you eat? Now, how many of you have a verse in the Bible that says to pray before you eat? Can you tell me where in the Bible it tells you to pray before you eat? Has anyone got one? I think it's in second hesitations. I'm just kidding. There isn't a verse. So why do you do it? Why don't you turn to the next person? You've been doing this for years, praying before you eat. Maybe even you feel guilty. You start eating at a meal and you haven't prayed yet and somebody suddenly says, wait, 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 what? We haven't prayed. You're eating unblessed food. Stop. We have to pray before we eat. Now, we all know that's true. We will look and judge you if you start eating before you pray, right? But, no, but nowhere in Scripture did it ever say that. So, I want you to turn to the person next to you and explain to them, why do you do that? <clears throat> it 
There's many great reasons that you could say. You could say because it's important to give thanks before we eat. You could say that it's because, well, that's the way I grew up. That's what my dad did. That's what my mom did. That's what my grandma did. And if it was good enough for my grandma, it's good enough for me. Um, But then again, why shouldn't we pray at the end of the meal? Why don't we pray in the middle of the meal when we can be really, we can know whether or not to pray Thanksgiving or to ask for forgiveness for those who tried to cook something too bold? So the Pharisees do not eat unless they give their hands washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. They observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Some texts even read, and mattresses and couches. They haul their couches to get baptized, just to be on the safe side. And the Pharisees say, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead eating with food, uh, with defiled hands? And he replied, Isaiah was right about you, hypocrites, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So you can see the scene. Imagine we are having an Easter sunrise breakfast, everyone's gathered around, some young men come in, they start eating, you tap the young men on the shoulder, excuse me young men. We uh, pray in this church um, before we eat, if you wouldn't mind just waiting a minute. And they said, we don't, and they keep eating. And you're like, we pray in this church before eating. Young men, stop. And they turn to you and say, hypocrites, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And the Pharisees are like, whoa, buddy, I just said, wash your hands. What's wrong with that? What's so wrong with saying a prayer before you eat or... You know, doing this ceremony, they worship me in vain for their teachings are merely human rules. And here's where Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. The danger can become when we use that few seconds of prayer before we eat to ignore the weightier matters of Scripture related to sharing our food with others. See, the problem is, is that we can pat ourselves on the back because I said a prayer before I eat, and yet ignore numerous passages in the Bible that take careful concern for sharing your table with those who are hungry, sharing it with those who are foreigners among you, for those who are destitute, the widow and the orphan. And all those texts in the Bible that talk about sharing our table with others, we set those aside and say, yes, but at least I pray before I eat. The danger can become when we allow a good tradition to replace a God commandment. When we allow a good tradition to replace a God commandment. Right? We can allow something that's perfectly good to, be, to become unnecessarily important. In our mind. Let's think about this for a second. How many of us are thankful that the fans are here? I'm thankful. Love it. We love the wind. The wind is great. Now, let me just ask you. I love wind, but would you pray to the wind? Dear wind, I just pray this morning that you would blow on me generously so that I may be cool. Would you pray to the wind? No. Because a good thing, right? If you let it become a God thing, the Bible term for that is an idol. When you allow a good thing, wind is great. I'm blessed that we have wind this morning. But if you allowed it to become the center of your attention, the object of your worship, the focus on whether or not God is present, if I don't feel a breeze, there's no Holy Spirit in that place. No way. I go to the church of the open windows only. Right? If you allowed a good thing, wind, to become a God thing, the Bible term for that is an idol. 
And when we allow a good thing, such as praying before we eat, such as how we dress, such as the way we do worship, such as, and the list goes on and on, the church in Zimbabwe is divided, not about scripture as much as tradition. How should we gather? How long should church be? What should the ministers wear? What should young people wear? What kind of music can we listen to? One of the things I like about this church is that we do not use a hymn book. Amen? You should be saying amen. Because without the hymn book, what happens is one generation's innovation becomes the prescription of the next generation, doesn't it? That one generation gets all their choruses together, they put it in a book, they're having church, and suddenly, instead of being a fluid document where we're adding new music all the time, instead it becomes the constitution by which church must be done. If it's not in the hymn book, if it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it was good enough for me. It is possible for a good thing to become of such great importance in our mind that it becomes a God thing. So here Jesus ignores it, and here's, he's going to use a couple of examples. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. He continued, you have a fine way of setting them to observe your own traditions. And his example will be this. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. Now, honor your father and mother here, it's a, it's a real specific term. Um, Here, we literally mean to financially provide for your parents so that they don't starve to death. This This is what this text means. I know honor can mean a lot of things in a lot of different places. But honor here does not mean that we agree with our parents on everything. It does not mean that we copy everything that they do. It does not mean we always have to answer the phone every time they call. Those are all fine. But in the Old Testament, honor refers to financially taking care of. Just like in 1 Timothy, when Paul says an elder who teaches is worthy of double honor, he's specifically referring to compensation. That it's just a term in, the, uh, in this point in time, all throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament. Honor your father and mother means financially take care of your parents. Even if they're not great people, even if they've been difficult to work with, if it is possible for you, don't let your parents starve to death. And anyone who curses their father or mother, that is, doesn't provide for them, kicks them out of the house, uh, leaves them out on their own, is to be put to death. That's pretty harsh. But you say that anyone who declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin, that is, you've dedicated it as an offering to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother. So notice what's happened. You nullify the word of God by your own tradition. You take a good thing and you use it to replace a God commandment. That is, the Pharisees would take part of their income and declare it Corban, set aside for God. Here's the great thing. They don't have to give it to God right away. It's just dedicated to God in case he needs it. So I can keep it in my wallet for now. So they can set aside this money, but then when their parents come and ask for it, they can say, I'm sorry, this money that's in my wallet, I've already reserved it in case God needs it. And so they now are, in fact, so religious that they're not going to follow God's command. And you do many more things, Jesus says, just like that. And again, Jesus called the crown, and listen to me, and this is going to be really important, this next verse. If you you only had one verse this morning, this is the one I'd want you to write down. 
is first is Mark chapter 7, verse 15. Nothing outside of a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what? Let's read this last part together. It is what comes out of a person that defiles them. And if you read the next verse in Mark, it says, and by saying this, Jesus declares all foods clean. We're going to say that part together because this comes up in Zimbabwe way too often and you need to have a place in the Bible that you can point to to say, no, no, Jesus never said that. Jesus said all foods are clean. Jesus said how many foods are clean? How many foods are clean? Okay, let's, let's, try, let's try a test. I'm going to test you. Is beef potentially clean and godly in God's sight? Is it godly to eat beef? Yes or no? Okay, is it godly to eat ribs in God's sight? Is it godly to eat chicken in God's sight? Oh, double yes. Okay? Now, if you want to eat only vegetables, God bless. Right? If you want to observe your family's tradition of a totem, that's fine. But you need to know Jesus himself declared how many foods clean? All foods clean. Right? And so here's the issue. You could allow... We have a national conference in the Churches of Christ some years ago, 2008, here in Terezi. And there was huge issues over different groups' uh, preferred way of eating. Some that had come up from Shangan territory, some that had come from Mozambique, some that don't eat this food and can only eat it served this way, and they can only do it if their elders do it. And every group has their reasons on why we would love to fellowship with other people at this church conference, but we can't because um, our tradition is that we don't eat meat that is not killed by our tribesmen. And the list goes on. Those traditions can be fine for your family to observe. My family is abstaining from desserts through Lent. But we do not believe that eating desserts is sinful. Eating desserts is great. We're going to eat it today because it's Resurrection Sunday. And even when you abstain from something in Lent, you usually have it on Sunday just to remember that Jesus rose from the dead. Hallelujah. Isn't that right? Are you having cake today? Are you excited about cake today? It's a great thing. So we would abstain from cake for a while because it's, it's a good thing to show God that we're serious and that we want our, our bodies to submit to him. But when we allow those momentary abstentions, whether it's a, a f- abstaining from meat, whether it's abstaining from certain foods to allow us to divide the church, to divide who we do fellowship, we allow a good thing to become a God thing. For God has commanded us to gather together. God has commanded us to be united. God has commanded us to extend fellowship to other Christians who are in need. And we cannot trump that with individualized command. And if anyone tells you otherwise, say, that's a nice tradition... But I follow the truth. That's a nice tradition, but I follow the truth. And Jesus says, if you want to know the verse, it's right here, Mark 7, 15. Growing up, I, uh, growing up, I grew up in an area where we wore Carhartt pants. And you might not know what Carhartt pants are, but imagine thick canvas being made into jeans. I mean, canvas so thick that when you first buy the jeans, like you really have to try to bend your knees because they'll want to just stay straight. I mean, these are tough clothes. They're designed for man work. These aren't designed for, you know, casual work like thorns won't go into Carhartt jeans. Carhartt jeans are tough jeans. In fact, in my neck of the woods, they're the best. You don't get better than Carhartt. You can try other denim and your fancy skinny jeans with your elastic in them if you want to do that. But real men wear Carhartt. Now, that's what you wear to school. So when we go to school, it's the best for doing work. 
until you go to school on the day that it is track day. They're going to log all the students' ability to run the mile, 1.6 kilometers. And Carhartts are good for many things, but running is not one of them. Uh, and trying to wear your Carhartts, because they're the best jeans, uh, when you try to wear Carhartts, um, they are going to slow you down. Um, you are going to be fighting against a river of denim that was never designed to move uh, that quickly. And a well-meaning teacher will tap you on the shoulder and say, you know, what is best for one scenario is not the best for another. Amen? What is best in one context may not be right in another. Because there's a time that running shorts are best. But if you are going into the deep part of Maconde, where the Davies stay, and you wear short running shorts, you are going to get ticks and thorns up one side and down the other. Might be time to pull out the Carhartts after all. You see, there's a time when one is best, and there's a time when another is best. And this has become difficult for some church people to get their head around. That what is right in one generation may be, the very, may be a hindrance to the next generation. What is appropriate in one generation may be a barrier in the next generation, may be the very thing slowing the church down. Growing up in my church, we used to pass communion trays. Did anyone grow up in a church passing communion trays? So I grew up in a church that passed communion trays. And in our church, um, you didn't have to be a leader in the church to pass the trays, but you had to be a man. Um, I don't know why, but our church only allowed men to pass the trays. Did anyone else grow up with that? Like men had to be holding the trays to pass them out. And they just felt like that was the best way to get it done. If you were a Christian and a man, then you can pass out communion. Now, after, now, at the time, that was considered culturally appropriate. In the 50s, nobody batted an eye at it, wasn't controversial, didn't hurt the church at all. But by the time I was doing ministry in the 2010 era, let me tell you, this was a major barrier to ministry. Women coming in the church saying, why aren't women allowed equal access to you know, serve in all areas of the church? Why can't they serve? Well, uh, you know, women aren't supposed to pass out communion. Oh, okay, where does it say that in the Bible? <clears throat> Well, it doesn't say it in the Bible exactly like that. I mean, not in so many words, but I mean, Jesus wouldn't want us to. And so we find ourselves like fighting. I mean, the leadership of the church, we're fighting to defend men passing out communion. When here's the thing, there's no real reason men would only pass out communion. It's just something that was convenient for one generation and was becoming a barrier to ministry in the next generation. A great writer by the name of Lee Kerther. Uh, started Amplify Church, what is now called Amplify Church in Pennsylvania. He started the church in the 1980s, and he grew the church to over 1,200 people, and it was going well, but he retired from the church, still young, and went into business and was doing quite well. And while he was away from the church, the church began to go in decline. Just one year after the next, it went from 1,200 to 900 to 700, it was getting older, and the congregation looked older, and they were doing rough, and they call him up in the late 90s and say, Pastor Lee, would you mind coming back to do church again? I don't want to do that, he says. I'm successful in business. I would have to take a pay cut. I just am not going to do that. And they keep asking him to pray about it. I mean, really pray about it, and they're praying about it. And he says, I don't know if you want me to come, because if if I come back... I'm going to be, I only will come if you are willing to change whatever I say. And so they pray about it, and they're desperate at this point, down to 400 people. Yes, Pastor Lee, however the Spirit leads you, we'll follow. 
A couple of old ladies said, we'll do whatever you want, Pastor Lee, but could you do me a favor and not make any of the changes until I'm dead? Because <laughs> I'd hate to have to be buried in another church, she told him. You know, I don't mind you changing things, just not while I'm around, please, because I like my church the way it is, and that's why the church was shrinking and dying and dying. And so he goes back. And it's so funny, because the enemy that he was fighting is himself from 20 years earlier. He once had a handbell choir. Those were popular in the U.S. You, it's ridiculous. I was in one once, too. You ring these bells on a big table. You remember those, Steph, the handbell choirs? Yeah, those were a thing. Um, not popular now, though. Not a lot of handbell choirs on YouTube, for those of you following trends. A uh, bit of a problem. Um, and so all these things that he had once started, the kind of political activism he used to do, the kind of ministry he used to do, he said, yeah, yeah, no, I know that was a good idea then, but... Probably time to let that one go. And he closes down ministry after ministry that he himself started. Because he says what is great for one generation may be a, very, a barrier to the next. And the lady was right. She was buried in another church. She refused to continue to attend. But another lady who had said the same comment decided to stick around. And after several years, the church is now doing incredible. You can read his book, Amplify Church. It's a great book. But the lady comes, he asked the lady, so... Do you like all the changes we've made at church? And she says, nope. I hate them. Awful. I wear earplugs during church. I hate it. Well, thank you, ma'am. I appreciate that. She says, but I wear earplugs and my granddaughters come with me to church. So I guess it's okay because they never would come before. When the church forgets what its mission is to reach and save that which is lost, when it's not here to be a monument to the way things were, when it maintains a willingness to change and to adapt to a new situation, the church grows wings because it can adapt. It can try new ministries and start new approaches. I want to look at this one last text, and this is from Mark chapter 11, verses 15 to 17. Jesus entered the temple courts, and he began driving out those who were buying. And for those of you following along carefully, watch this carefully. He's driving out those who are buying and... Okay, both groups, the buying and the selling. Not just those who are selling. That's going to be important in a second. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. This cleansing of the temple where Jesus drives everyone out, because you know how the temple worked. In those days, you were not allowed to use Roman money inside of a Jewish temple. The Roman coins have on the back of them the picture of Caesar, where it says, you know, Tiberius Caesar, son of Augustus, son of God. And that was considered to be idolatry by Jewish standards. And so you can't use your money in the temple. You have to change it at the bank rate. And we all know how it works when somebody controls the bank rate. It usually works in favor of those in power, doesn't it? And so you got these guys changing pagan money for Jewish money. And you're not allowed to buy Jewish sacrifices with pagan money. And so there's money changers and there's sacrifices being sold. The business is hopping. And Jesus comes in one day and flips it all upside down, dumps the tables over. And here's his word. The point of the temple was to be a place of prayer for who? All nations. All nations. And nations here does not mean political empires. We might write, the, my house is to be a house of prayer for all peoples, for all cultures, 
for all different groups, and yet you've turned it into a den of thieves. The den of thieves quote is a, a making reference to a passage from Jeremiah, but I want you to think about what that means. There's a temptation to read this text as saying Jesus cleans out the temple because those who were selling things were making money. But then why does Jesus drive out both the buyers and the sellers? I mean, if Jesus was just about corruption, right? There's honest people worshiping there and he's mad at all the people selling, then surely the people buying should be let to stay. And yet Jesus drives everyone out because a den of thieves is not a place where robbery happened. A den of thieves is where thieves go after they are finished robbing. If you go and find a den of thieves, it's a place where the thieves have finished their robbing and now they're hiding out, waiting for the police to quit looking. They hide their TVs and their pumps and fuel that they've stolen. They lay low in the bushes with their friends until it looks like it's all clear. Then they can go and sell their goods. A den of thieves is not a place of robbery. It's where robbers go to hide. And what Jesus is saying is that this religion has become a place where you go out and commit crime. You come in here and pay a few dollars for your sacrifice, you get your slate white clean, and then you go back out and do things the way you've always done them. You just made this into a place where thieves come to hide out for a little while. This is what Sigmund Freud talks about when he criticized religion in the West. He says it's like a little girl who, when she gets punished by her parents, she feels so much better because she's now paid her debt back. She's gotten beaten, she feels good inside because she's paid her debt and she can continue to behave as before. There's a part of religion that all it do- is, all religion is, according to Freud, is a place for people to come here, we sing some songs until we get excited, then we feel forgiven, we beat ourselves up for being really sinful, and then we go back out to behave as we always have. And while I think Freud is mistaken on religion's purpose, he is not mistaken on how it's often used. For religion often becomes just a a ceremony that you can go through to assuage your guilt. You're feeling bad about a past life. You're feeling bad about a past sin. You're feeling bad about things that you've gotten up to, and church can be a way to feel better. Karl Marx makes that similar uh, statement when he says this, that religion is the opium of the masses. Have you heard that quote in church before? Or maybe in school? Karl Marx said... Religion is just opium of the masses. You need to know that when he wrote that in the 1800s, opium is a popular painkiller. It wasn't a, a, a drug associated with heroin. But all he's saying is the religion can be like bufrin. You take it, and it makes you feel better for a while. But it does nothing to alleviate the underlying condition. It just takes care of your surface remedies, helps you feel better for a few hours, and then you go back to the way things always were. And when Jesus is calling, this is what the purpose of the church, the purpose of the temple is to be a place for all cultures to come together, to be welcomed, to hear God's name lifted up, to hear truth proclaimed from the Bible, to hear Jesus calling us back to himself. But instead, it becomes a place of exclusion, a place of hypocrisy, a place of nothing but putting a band-aid on top of overarching sickness. And so Jesus calls it a den of thieves. But as Jesus himself comes, it doesn't have to be that way. As the text of this reminds us over and over again, Jesus himself is the better way. Jesus says this in John, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus says over and over again that you observe traditions, but you've forgotten justice and mercy. I am justice and mercy. I am the living example of God's love. We're going to have just a moment now where we're going to come toward the table. 
We're going to remember this time where Jesus gave his life for us that we might come into his house. You see, the purpose of a message like today is for us to take some cold, hard stock on on what traditions we have allowed to creep in the way between us and God. It's It's to look around and say, you know, praying before I eat is good, but what am I forgetting about who I eat with? What am I forgetting about who I need to share this meal with? You know, these traditions are fine, but what am I allowing to get in the way of the gospel? Is church for me just a time where I check a box off a list? Or is it a time where I follow after Jesus with all of my heart? When people ask me why I gather on Sunday morning, I want it to be because I have fallen in love with the Savior and not checking a box off a list. When people ask me, well, why do you gather around this table? I'll say because Jesus commanded, do this in remembrance of me. When we sacrifice our money for those in need, I'll say it's because Jesus himself demonstrated what it means to give. In all that we do, may the answer not be, well, because that's the way my mother did it, but because that's the way my Savior showed me. We're going to stand now during this time of response. If you're here today and inside of Christ, we would challenge you during, we would ask you during this time to come and partake of this. This isn't a church of Christ table. It doesn't require a priest. If you have a covenant relationship with God, all are welcome to come and take of the table. But if you're here today and outside of Christ, we would love to pray with you about what it means to follow after Jesus, to give your life to him in baptism. So after the service sometime, if you would talk to myself or...